This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Wednesday, November 4th, 2020. The results of the American election are coming as a trickle rather than a burst. We speak to a CBS News reporter who's been covering the various districts in which the votes are still being counted. It's been 25 years since the assassination of Israel's Prime Minister and what one of our guests describes as the Jewish community's JFK moment. And we take a look at how this pandemic has capsized the way in which Canadian courts have traditionally managed the triage of justice. All of this starts now. Joining me on the line right now is Kara Corti, who is a CBS radio reporter covering the election extensively. Kara, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. I'm very curious right now, because as we speak, I'm just watching a monitor, but uh, not listening. And I know there are a series of legal channel challenges being launched by the Trump campaign. Uh, can you maybe spell it out for us? What are the nature of these challenges? Yeah, it's pretty widespread at, at this point, And this has happened fairly rapidly just this afternoon. Um, they're focusing in on, of course, these battleground toss-up states, some where it's been projected the president has already lost others where results are not yet decided. Um, In Wisconsin in particular, CBS News has projected Joe Biden has won that state by about 20,000 votes. The uh, Trump campaign has already decided, has already declared that they are going to be calling for a recount in Wisconsin. Now, Wisconsin is one one of the states where there is no automatic recount. In some, if, if the margin is so close, the state automatically goes into a recount. Wisconsin is not one of those. And the Trump campaign is going to initiate a recount there. And you should note that in 2016, the Green Party candidate for president in the U.S., Jill Stein, called for a recount in Wisconsin. They did that, and there was no discernible change in results. So uh, there's no reason to expect that we'll see that this time around. It's also good to know because it means that officials there know what they're doing. They're practiced in holding recounts and should hopefully do so uh, expeditiously. Other legal matters that we're following are uh, the continuation of a pattern that we've seen with the Trump campaign for months now, uh, where they will call into question uh, voter fraud or voting security or voting irregularities throughout the country. And we're seeing so far there they have uh, filed prepared to file suit in Michigan. Uh, they are looking like they're preparing to do so in Pennsylvania and other states as well. And what happens in these scenarios is that the campaign uh, says, for example, that they want their campaign staffers allowed to go to polling places in order to observe uh, the counting of ballots. Now, that process exists but it has a formal title, which is a poll watcher or a poll challenger. And these, again, are certified uh, official uh, members of the political community who represent both sides of the aisle. Uh, but to ask to just uh, send at will campaign representatives is not something that exists anywhere in the country. It, it is not legal anywhere in the country. We've seen the Trump campaign fight for that in multiple states. Uh, earlier this year, they did that in Pennsylvania. And a Trump appointed judge in that state asked the campaign to provide evidence uh, for why staffers needed to be there, why it would therefore prevent uh, fraud. They failed to produce that uh, adequate amount of evidence. And again, that Trump appointed judge 
throughout that case. That similar argument they've taken across the country. It's now they're they're re-upping it now, and they have not been successful anywhere in in their attempts to suggest that voting fraud and voting irregularity is is rampant or significant in any way. Carol, what is Rudy Giuliani doing in Philadelphia right now? What's his petition? I understand there's about a million, if not more, outstanding votes in Pennsylvania. Uh, so what is his plea? That's right. And what they're trying to do in Pennsylvania, led by the former New York Mayor uh, Giuliani, also uh, a part of this legal team is former Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi, who uh, some might recognize as being a part of the president's impeachment legal team. Uh, they uh, seem to be mounting this legal effort uh, from the nucleus of Pennsylvania. Uh, the reason for that, we believe, is because it is one of the closer margins of the states that, that exist right now. But again, as you said, there are over a million ballots that still need to be counted in Pennsylvania. Most of them are by mail, and most of them are cast uh, in and around Philadelphia, which is deep, deep blue stronghold for Democrats. And we also know that um, mail ballots are, are trending towards the vice president. Uh, so we believe that uh, the Trump campaign is basically trying to get ahead of the game there, uh, Giuliani leading the way trying to do anything they can to turn the tides in their favor. Now, it has been suggested some of these things would go to the Supreme Court. Donald Trump, uh, no one less than him, actually said this may go to the Supreme Court. My understanding, though, is the Supreme Court doesn't just willy-nilly take on a case. It's got to proceed up through, you know, the process through lower court levels. Uh, would that be correct in saying what I just said? Uh, or am I... Uh, maybe misunderstanding how this whole process might play out. No, you're you're understanding it uh, perfectly well. Now, of course, the caveat is that if we know anything about 2020, it's that uh, expect we should all expect the unexpected. Uh, that being said, uh, I do think uh, there is reason to believe that this the matter of this election, the results of this election won't be taken uh, to the Supreme Court. Part of that is because, uh, you know, throughout this year, there have been almost 400 uh, voting related lawsuits executed over 45 states uh, in in America. Um, we have seen a pattern now starting to develop of how lower courts and and the higher court uh, appraise these cases. And what we have seen uh, is that in accordance with the U.S. Constitution, it is up to states to execute elections uh, in the U.S. That's part of why it's so complicated is because every single state has a different set of rules. But because uh, it is written that states are the ultimate uh, 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 executive of elections, the Supreme Court, of course, most notable, a notable exception of this would be uh, uh, Bush v. Gore in 2000, but the Supreme Court likes to stay away from affecting uh, vote totals uh, when when it comes to elections. They don't want to they don't want to weigh in on uh, on results. They might weigh in on the way things are done or the way things are not done, but when it comes to counting, uh, it seems that they are bashful about kind of stepping back into that same realm that we found ourselves in 20 years ago. Um, so again, there, the, these cases that are bubbling up have to do with the way things are done, uh, but 
seeing down the line a possibility where a result itself is contested, I think at this point is unlikely. And of course, the president can say whatever he wants. But the reality is that right now, that is not something that's going to happen. Well, uh, we're still a ways from a resolution, and uh, we'll have to see if it's sooner rather than later. As I said, Joe Biden just uh, six away from, according to, anyway, uh, some of the the cable networks in the U.S. of A. uh, claiming the 270 necessary electoral college votes. uh, We watch with anticipation north of the border. Thanks, Kara, so much for your time this afternoon. I appreciate it. Take care. You got it. Kara Corti. CBS radio reporter covering the election. When it comes to uh, matters involving the Jewish state, it's uh, interesting. I was reading a piece in the National Post by Abby Ben Lolo, the human rights expert, uh, had to do with the assassination 25 years ago of Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, and uh, to which Abby uh, Ben Lolo called it the Jewish world's JFK moment. Let's find out what he means by that. I was rather intrigued, as I say. Abby Ben Lolo has joined us on the line here on the Oakley Show. Abby, good to have you back. Hi there. Hi there. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you very much for having me, John. So tell me, uh, in a nutshell, the Jewish world's JFK moment, uh, an epochal moment, defining watershed, whatever we want to call it. Uh, why was it seen as such in your mind? Well, look, I mean, it was a, a tragedy. A Jewish assassin uh, killed a Jewish prime minister. Um, you know, this has never happened in the state of Israel. Um, you know, the world was in shock, as it had been in shock when, you know, JFK was, was shot and, and, and killed. And it was to that level. And by writing it that way, I wanted to accentuate that point of how impactful it really was for the state of Israel, the Jewish people, and really, I would say it was uh, the death nail to the peace agreement that uh, Yitzhak Rabin was putting together with the Palestinians, and he was struggling through it, even at the backlash, you know, of Israeli society um, that that didn't trust Yasser Arafat, and rightfully so, as we saw years later. But he was putting together and determined have this peace agreement with them and you know the landscape of the world could have been much different had Rabin stayed alive well it was interesting because in 93 we had uh, 93 94 the Oslo Accords Bill Clinton kind of brokered those and you've got that famous picture uh, Yitzhak Rabin shaking hands with Yasser Arafat although he seemed to box somewhat uh, or it was an awkward moment uh, yeah. But some people are saying in hindsight he was really naive to trust that Arafat really had the best of intentions, was just kind of uh, stalling for time or looking for some kind of leverage. Uh, he was playing a game. Uh, how do you look back at that historically in hindsight? Do you think Rabin, uh, again, was being taken for a ride here or uh, things could have had better outcomes had he lived? Well, yes, and, and that's uh, usually the charge that's being made at, uh, at Rabin and the peace process itself, and then they evite about it because, as you know, as we saw only months after, I believe it was in February, uh, so Rabin was killed in November, in February um, was the first suicide attack uh, in, in Jaffa, in Tel Aviv, and so, um, you know, it didn't take uh, Yasser Arafat very long to turn around and to start launching a series of suicide bombings across uh, the state of Israel, in Tel Aviv, in Jerusalem, hitting discotheques, uh, especially hitting young people. 
and it went all the way into the 2000s. And so um, many say, well, this was just the Trojan horse for Yasser Arafat and his friends to come into the, the territories, to start establishing themselves, to start building up their, their network of terrorism, because, you know, that's that was their background, and to launch this attack against Israel in hopes of bringing Israel to its knees and forcing either the destruction of the state of Israel or, or just more leverage from a negotiating point of view. As we know now, uh, that didn't succeed. Yasser Arafat, um, you know, didn't succeed in, in doing what, you know, but unfortunately Hamas was established in the Gaza Strip. Uh, he had lost uh, the Gaza Strip and Hamas moved in, and today you have a radical uh, terrorist state sitting on the Gaza Strip that is indiscriminately firing rockets at mostly southern towns in Israel. So Israel is still reeling from that terrorism that Arafat had, so so to speak, planted, and the incitement, uh, so to speak, that happened. And the other thing that I would say is that now that we've moved into a peace agreement with UAE, with Bahrain and Sudan, which is fantastic, uh, and when you think about it, it's 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 over 25 years later. Um, you know, you know, it's 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 a beautiful thing. Israel wants to have peace. The Jewish people want to have peace. However, the Palestinians, despite this, these peace agreements, the Palestinians are still uh, shirking that opportunity and still saying, no, we don't want peace with Israel. And that is a massive problem for both and, you know, unfortunate for the Palestinian people. Again, with Abby Ben Lolo, former president and CEO of the Friends of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. You know, when uh, Yitzhak Rabin, just before he was assassinated, actually said, I want to say bluntly that we found a partner for peace among the Palestinians as well. The PLO, which was an enemy, has ceased to engage in terrorism. Speaks again to perhaps that naivete or uh, he's just, you know, trying to ameliorate the situation and uh, say laudatory things. You think that maybe Arafat as well overreached? I mean, he was vilified for having cobbled or been a party to this uh, arrangement as well. So uh, his status seemingly never was the same. And it uh, gave rise to, I guess, what, another intifada. He was marginalized uh going forward from this too in other words discredited by some uh, some in the uh, palestinian camp would you say uh yeah look uh some in the palestinian camp discredited him particularly the you know we'll call it the hamas wing which which still to this day hamas as we know if you look at their charter doesn't recognize the state of israel and wants the land back by any means, and particularly uh, through the incitement of violence. And so many, of course, opposed uh, Arafat. On the other hand, Arafat, um, you know, was really the man of the moment. He had, um, you know, the international community behind him. He had many Arab states behind him. Everybody, you know, as I wrote in my piece, everybody was optimistic uh, about the peace process. And, you know, in fact, you know, had that peace process continued along, we would have had peace with countries uh, like Morocco, as an example, or Oman, or Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, so he had all the backing. He was given a lot of money by a lot of a lot of countries, including Canada and America. And so everything, you know, the wind was behind his sails to forge peace. But, you know, it's like that story of the, scor- of the scorpion. He just could not get over his habits. Of, of terrorism, and I believe that that's what, in the end, played into it. 
um, and and he launched the terrorist attacks against Israel. And that, in turn, in fact, I would say, you know, um, I wouldn't use the word radicalized, but it would it really made the Israeli society in general uh, less optimistic about about his sincerity less believing about his sincerity and therefore they were they neglected or did not want to forge peace with the Palestinians and um and and that is a big thing and that's why it's taken so long to even move to these peace agreements that we're seeing here today I mean what do you make of the prospects of a peaceful two-state solution I think that's being promoted or had been by the Trump administration and that leads to another question as to who would be better to uh the interests of Israel and stability and peace in the Middle East, uh, if there'd be a retreat from Biden, because we know Trump, you know, the deals I cited at the outset, and we've also got the embassy being moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, where many have promised, few have delivered, if any. Uh, how do you see it? Yeah, I mean, and it's an excellent question, and we're going to see what the results of the elections will be and, and Biden's approach. I think Biden is, Biden for sure is pro-Israel, uh, maybe he takes a little bit of a softer, uh, more nuanced or balanced uh, approach to to the issue. Uh, but Biden will be pro-Israel. He has a long history in advocating for for the state of Israel, the Jewish people, but also believing in a in a two state solution. Um, as did Trump. I I am still a strong, on a personal note, I'm still a strong supporter of the two state solution. I still believe that, you know, it's the only way to go. That you know, both parties. Uh, will have their independent state living side by side in peace harmoniously. I would like to see that language, though, reiterated by the Palestinian side, because when you hear the Palestinian side, that's not what they're saying. And that's that's a big concern. And no matter, you know, Trump tried throwing more money at them, they rejected that. We we know that previously they've been offered land. Uh, you know, in previous times they've even been offered East Jerusalem, which was a, which was a stretch, and they rejected that as well. So they've rejected every single peace overture that's being made, and that's a, that's really unfortunate. I think it's unfortunate, frankly, to the for the Palestinian, the average Palestinian person who really just wants to go on with their life and you know live happily. Um, but you have these, these elements within the Palestinian Authority that are just operating on an extreme front and have this belief that somehow Israel will go away and the Jewish people will go away. It's not going to happen. And so I hope that they'll come to that realization very soon and that both parties can have a peaceful outcome. I'll ask you finally and very quickly, so if Joe Biden is the ultimate victor and uh, he resurrects the Iran nuclear deal, we know Iranian hegemony is a big concern of the Israelis and a lot of interests in the Middle East as well. How's that going to augur for a peace deal with Israel going forward? Well, yeah, and they're betting on, uh, they're hoping that uh, Biden will win because they want to see the JCPOA, um, uh, you know, come back and the nuclear, the nuclear deal uh, happen happen once again. And that's not what Israel wants. Um, it's a it's a huge cause for concern, as we know. Iran is developing nuclear weapons as we speak, and Iran will continue developing uh, nuclear we- uh, weapons, whether it's Biden or Trump, um, you know, in in place. And it's a very very dangerous country, not only for Israel. You know, they're 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 developing ballistic missiles uh, that can be intercontinental and can reach the U.S. and Canada as well. And we know this. And so Israel, you know, might be at the forefront of this because they're the closest to Iran, and Iran has said it wants to wipe Israel off the map. 
Um, but I believe that the whole world should be concerned about uh, the nuclearization of Iran. Great explanations across the board. Avi Ben-Lolo, human rights expert, former president and CEO of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Setters. Thanks so much as always, Avi. Thank you for having me. Have a good night. You got it. Interesting story out of Thunder Bay where a, a young indigenous woman uh, was killed. Uh, they say, at least, uh, this is now being presented as the Crown's argument. Uh, a contributing factor was, even though she had underlying conditions when she did pass, uh, she had also been hit with a trailer hitch that was thrown from a car that uh, the accused Braden Bushby, 21, uh, has now been charged with second degree murder, actually uh, manslaughter uh, and aggravated assault that has actually been dialed down from a second-degree murder rap because space limitations made a jury trial impossible. Let's get Joseph Newberger in here to uh, help us understand exactly what's playing out in this court in Thunder Bay. Joseph, always a pleasure. It's been a long time. Good to talk. It has. Nice to hear your voice, John. So what do we make of this? I mean, first of all, uh, this Braden Bushby, 21, uh, had his case, the charge reduced from second-degree murder to manslaughter because of space limitations. The defense would have yeah. to agree to that, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, it, and it seems a bit odd to me as well, because there are facilities that you can lease out, like some sort of convention center or a hockey arena, to try and create uh, social distancing. I, I think the greater issue was probably maybe an overall reluctance of people who would be potential jurors on the panel of of coming out during a pandemic. And so with the consent of, of the accused, then you could have a trial judge alone. But it seems in this case they reduced it from second to manslaughter simply just to go judge alone. Whereas, I just want to point this out for the listeners, that even on a murder case like Manassian, which is going on in Toronto, if you get the consent of the attorney general, you can do a murder case uh, with a judge alone and no jury. So I'm, I'm wondering if there was more to why uh, the charge was um, reduced to manslaughter. All right. Uh, maybe you just want to speculate here as to why that sure. might be. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if they felt that they might have ha- not had enough for the intent to kill. Um, and with a manslaughter, uh, it's going to be easier to establish that the action itself was likely to cause, uh, you know, serious bodily harm or death. And I think the standard that they'll have to reach from uh, from a, a mental standpoint approving of the accused should be a lot easier to to get on a manslaughter. I I don't see this as an aggravated assault. I see it as a slam dunk manslaughter. And then in sentencing, given the severity uh, of what happened and, you know, the intent behind it, which we can all speculate about, but if it's established that those words were said and, and the circumstances, you know, the sentence that can be meted out can be quite high. It won't be a life sentence where somebody's on a life you know, with no parole until such and such a time. But but you can get near murder type of level of sentencing. Again, with Joseph Newberger, uh, Global News Radio's legal expert, uh, you know, you've raised three interesting points here very quickly. Now, uh, there were two charges here, manslaughter and assault. And so uh, the defense said his client's pleading guilty to assault, but not guilty to manslaughter. You can split the two, I guess. Yeah, and, and that's sometimes a tactic where you, you plead guilty to, I mean, it would have to be to something closer to an aggravated assault, but you can split the two and then contest the more serious offense. Absolutely correct. The other one is that uh, it's been shown that Ms. Kentner, the deceased, had underlying health conditions, and she passed on July 4th, 2017. Uh, 
Now, they say that uh, Bushby's attack, this was like uh, after the attack, well after five months after the attack, uh, the defense is saying, or the Crown rather, is saying, uh, we don't have to prove that being struck with a trailer hitch was the primary cause of her death, but hastening death is enough. It's a contributing factor. Uh, explain why that is. Yeah, so there would have to be more of a linkage under a second-degree murder charge. Um, but but regardless of the underlying factor, there is a rule of law that you find your victim as is. So um, they would have to establish the linkage that the injury sustained by the assault was a contributing factor to the death. Uh, within a manslaughter, you're, it's still a very similar test, but it doesn't have to be a significant factor. Um, it just has to be a contributing factor. So if this poor woman had an underlying illness that... Um, predisposes her to dying as a result of, you know, any type of uh, injuries that she could sustain. This is one of those injuries that was not something that was happenstance. This was something that befell her, um, you know, at, at, at the behest of this gentleman by a direct assault. So I think they're going to have an easier time connecting the, the actual assault to the death, so making a legal causation. And then also I think they're going to have an easier time with the mental element as well. You know, you say causation versus correlation because they're saying uh, this isn't necessarily a medical link. It's just a legal link. Uh, so you, you basically, yeah. yeah, you don't have to have any attestation from a medical expert to say this was the cause of her death then. Yeah, that, I, I got to tell you, when I'm reading that, John, and I, I didn't understand it because you would call medical evidence because you'd have to have some basis even to make a legal analysis unless the Crown has, the defense and Crown has agreed that the, uh, you know, the post-mortem and pathology will go in, and there will there would have been a, um, an examination done afterward where there will be an opinion from a pathologist about cause of death and will indicate if the injury itself was a, a, was a contributor in some fashion, whether it was a minor contributor or a major contributor. So there has to be some medical evidence as a foundation to, make the, to do the legal analysis and then make the finding. The other thing uh, that I wanted to bring up is where uh, the defense argued there's no evidence that the attack was motivated by racism, uh, even though in testimony from the deceased sister, and uh, I guess it's Ms. Kentner as well, before she passed, she had given video evidence that uh, somebody leaned out the window, this would be Bushby, the accused, and said, yeah, I got one of them, and then they sped off. Uh, the argument is that from the defense, no evidence that the attack was motivated by racism, how do you feel a judge might interpret uh, what has been presented as evidence? This sounds like it could be overtly racist. Yeah, no, you make a good point. You can, you know, at face value, without drilling down, you could say, well, it seems that they're targeting somebody who is of indigenous background, and that statement just confirms it. That said, there has to be some evidence to establish that um, the accused actually knew what was the uh, race of the person who was operating the car or in the car uh, when the uh, trail hitch was launched at it. So I think you need more evidence to establish that, you know, it's more than just hitting another car or hitting other people because it, it's a little bit more of a neutral, um, I don't want to say neutral, but it, it's more of an opaque statement that cannot necessarily be directed at an identifiable group. You know, all of us who use common sense will step back and go, gee, that lawyer's splitting hairs. That makes no sense. But because it seems outwardly uh, motivated by hate, and it may very well have. But within a legal test, there has to be some evidence to establish that, you know, he knew exactly that he was throwing it at somebody 
who was of an indigenous background. Uh, in my opinion, I think that will have to form some basis in order to determine the motivation. But I think what what's also important is just, you know, the fact that what they're doing in the territory they are will also be uh, of consideration because it's obviously in an area where you have many, uh, you know, First Nations and other communities of Indigenous backgrounds. So I think that will support the Crown's argument as well. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Uh, so things need to get contextualized because I can't recall the case fairly recently, I think, where uh, a judge actually imputed racism and there wasn't necessarily evidence established to that point, but that was just, again, if you, uh, it sounds familiar to you, uh, tell me about it. If you've ever seen any judge maybe go above and beyond and impute racism or a hate crime in something where evidence didn't necessarily establish that. You ever have any experience with that? There, there clearly are statements made during sentencing um, where there is an element of of um, racism uh, in the in the uh, in the sentencing as an aggravating factor. But again, whether it's in sentencing or it's in a trial, it has to be established. So, if a judge makes a finding without a sufficient basis of evidence, and that finding either leads to a conviction or leads to uh, on sentencing a harsher sentence that can be challenged and overturned on appeal. There really has to be a solid foundation for that. Um, And so I haven't heard that being thrown out that willy-nilly. I've heard it a couple of times in cases with respect to sentencing in particular uh, factual scenarios. Always fascinating to talk. Joseph, I appreciate it, and uh, great insight into a case that uh, is continuing up there in Thunder Bay and uh, will await the outcome. Thanks so much for your time, as always. Thanks, John. Take care. Have a great show as usual. Thank you. Joseph Newberger, Newberger and Partners, criminal lawyers and global news legal expert. That's a wrap for the Oakley Show podcast for Wednesday, November 4th, 2020. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 